0: Why haven't you
1: seen Why The Gold Rush? Why, 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 Why haven't gone you, gone the you seen
2: American really? Psycho? Hello, and welcome to another episode of FilmWise, also known as the Why Haven't You Seen This Film podcast. As always, I am Bubba Wheat from Flights, Tights, and MovieNights.com, and each episode I have on a guest who introduces me to a film that's uh, usually a classic or a modern classic that I've never seen before. And in return, I have them watch a uh, superhero or comic book film that they've never seen before. And today my guest is Heather Baxendale from the MILF cast. How are you doing today?
1: I'm fantastic. Thank you for having me
2: on. Oh, well, it's good to have you on. Um, and for those who don't know, and uh, you host the, the MILF cast with Kai and... Why don't you tell them a little bit about that? I, I know I listen I listened back before your hiatus, and uh, I have listened to a couple episodes since you've been back, and I'm glad that you two are back. You that's a really fun show.
1: Yeah, we're we're a little silly. We um <laughs> We, we were around for quite a few years, uh, when podcasting was, I, I suppose just becoming kind of more of a thing and people were leaving blogging so much and getting more into podcasting, which we were kind of burnt out on. So we, we really enjoyed it and both of us got busy with, you know, family and that kind of thing. So we took a few years off and we just got back together and it's like we haven't missed a beat. It's really, really great to be back on together again. And our show's a little a little offbeat for some people I know, but it's
2: it's a good time. Yeah, it's it's not like the the dozens of uh, film podcasts out there where it's a bunch of people talking about like a new release or like a classic film. But you two usually have a guest on and just kind of have film related discussions. And usually you'll talk about like stuff you've seen lately, and then have like trivia stuff. But it's uh, it's very very fun and casual and, and very entertaining you you do are are very silly with each other and <laughs> it's great to listen to
1: thank you that's that's kind of our goal though we want it to be more of like discussion oriented and and feel like you're hanging out with your friends we don't really do movie reviews that's our thing lots of people do that so you know we don't want to be a dime a dozen but we want to have fun and and we love movies so that's that's what we're there for just to talk about and have a good time
2: yeah and uh as always I I have a few questions to get to know your movie taste a little bit better. Um so what would you say are, are three films that you've seen the most often and haven't gotten tired of yet?
1: I I have quite a few of these. I'm I'm prolific when it comes to certain movies and they're not necessarily the best movies ever either, but I I I grew up with a mom who worked in a video store. And then through my college years in high school, I worked or the end of high school in my college years, I worked at Blockbuster. So I spent a good period of my life being exposed to movies and being able to have access to rewatching over and over and over again before Netflix, before all of that. Uh, when I was probably nine or ten, Tremors came out. And my mom worked at a Universal Video store. My experience was I was allowed to rent one movie a week, and that was my thing. Mm-hmm. Almost a year straight, I rented Tremors, and then I finally got it for Christmas or a birthday or something. And I've seen that movie probably 500 times easily. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it's it's not I, – I, I maintain that it's still a quality film. It's fun. It's it's kind of unique in its its genre. It's almost comedy horror. Um for anyone that hasn't seen it it's a Kevin Bacon film so it's a required viewing I believe and uh yeah and related
2: to one of the films that we're going to be talking to talking about yes, today.
1: Yes, but it's it's definitely one of my favorites. It's a go-to that if it's on TV or it's on or somebody suggests watching it I'm going to sit down and and watch it and enjoy it just as much as every other time I've seen it. Um another one that I prob- is probably close to that that's definitely my most movie- viewed movie of all time. Is labyrinth, David Bowie, Jennifer Connolly,
2: David Bowie's package.
1: <laughs> yeah, that is the best part. I
2: mean, <laughs> <laughs> I, I just I, saw somebody <laughs> on Facebook shared with me a video. It's a, a parody video where they take the the Babe song, "Dance Magic Dance," and they make it all about uh, David Bowie's crotch.
1: Well, I mean, that is pretty much the third co-star. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a great... I, I think it's the movie that really got me attached to to fantasy um, at a very young age, and I was just enamored with it. But it's, it's, again, a movie that I rewatched regularly as a child, but I enjoy it completely differently, but just as much as an adult.
2: Yeah, and- I always find that one fascinating because... Whenever I was a kid, I never watched Labyrinth, but I watched, I was a huge fan of The Dark Crystal, and, and I didn't catch up with Labyrinth until uh, like I was an adult. And I still love it because, I mean, it's Jim Henson and fantasy and, and all that stuff, but uh, I still find it interesting that I, I never, I don't remember ever watching it whenever I was actually a kid.
1: I had that same experience, but with The Dark Crystal. <laughs> I, I didn't see it until probably my late teens. So I, and, and the two for most people, I think kind of go together. Mm. So that is, that is kind of interesting, but I, I think it's still unique too. And that, I think that's one of the things that is appealing to it. There isn't necessarily anything that's specifically comparable in that genre to that movie, Yeah, but, but I, I enjoy it for, for all those, those reasons and more, but it's clearly a rewatchable film and a great mm. cult classic. My favorite movie of ta- all time is also one of the movies I viewed the most my favorite genre. It's aliens. Uh, I actually saw it when I was maybe four or five for the first time I had an affection for action movies. I'd watched all 80s action movies with my, my dad, and my mom hated it. Not even so much to violence, but she hated the cursing. and And I was pretty desensitized to anything scary at a pretty young age. So she thought if I watched Aliens, it would scare me, and I wouldn't want to watch scary movies anymore. <laughs> and it had the complete opposite effect. I think, uh, I think Ripley kind of started my, my affection for the strong woman characters, uh, the action adventure, and it's absolutely incredible. And the special effects hold up to today, which in itself is incredible. And it, it created my affection for my favorite movie genre, which is science fiction. And I, I love it. I have to watch it at least once every month or two, or I start to miss it.
2: Yeah, I I know I've seen, that that was the first Alien film that I watched, was Aliens, and I've seen it a few times, and and I've only, the only other ones I've ever seen is I only just watched the first Alien like uh, a couple years ago, and I watched uh, AVP in theaters.
1: Oh, that's unfortunate. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I saw Alien Three in theaters too, so <laughs> so that wasn't exactly the best movie going experience.
2: Yeah, but yeah, I, mean, it's... I can imagine from what I've heard.
1: Oh, you haven't seen it?
2: No, I, those are still the, the only three that I've seen from the series.
1: Okay, I... well, Resurrection is one definitely worth checking out. It's if you detach yourself from the mythology of the first two, which I don't think is so difficult now, maybe 10 years ago it was a little bit more difficult, but that one's at least fun if you don't take it too seriously and Ron Perlman's outstanding in it, but it's, it's, it's silly, but fun. But three is just awful. I, I'll revisit it once every, you know, seven to 10 years just to see if maybe I, I, I missed that because I love David Fincher, but it was it's, it's a pretty awful movie.
2: Yeah did, did you ever watch uh, I think they call it the assembly cut since there was since D- David Fincher didn't want to have anything to do with it so they had to kind of make what they think was trying to be his director's cut but without the director being involved?
1: <laughs> no, I haven't. <laughs> oh goodness that I, that's one of the things that I did find curious about it though because the script itself isn't completely terrible. But you can see that there's a struggle between uh, kind of what the studio was going for, uh, a a storyline that was almost attempting to develop really good character stuff work, which I think Fincher does a brilliant job of being subtle about. And at the same time, you could see that it wasn't intended to be subtle at all. But the special effects in it are god-awful. I mean, they're just outrageously poor. Uh and it was one of the movies I think that first kind of used CGI in a, in a very very blatant way. I think I think we got that with with Gollum to where it was very bold and it worked with Gollum in Lord of the Rings and I think that's what they wanted to do with alien in this film, but it it it's it's terrible. It's it's really terrible and it distracts from whatever storyline it is that they're trying to make happen
2: in it. Yeah. But yeah, you that can was, feel that how time, it is. Yeah, that was the time whenever it was very easy to get bad CGI in a movie, in like a high-budget movie too.
1: Yeah, it was. It's 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 pretty it's pretty unforgivable.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll I'll have to take your word for it. But although I I do want to see it at some point, like just out of curiosity. Uh, but um, I'm not in any big hurry. Um, but uh, so what's what's your favorite film that you've only seen once?
1: I I love this question, and I love it because there's actually a good handful of films that I, I thought about um, when I was reading it, and I was trying to fixate on one that I, I really love the story, the characters, and I do want to rewatch it. I just don't. And I actually own it, which is even more bizarre. <laughs> it's Magnolia. Okay. I, I could throw this probably in my top 100 movies, or favorite movies of all time, easily, and I have no idea why. I've only seen it once. I And and it's been a very long time. I watched it when it was just released on DVD because I, I was working in Blockbuster still. And I watched it, I think, after my shift. And I say it's a long movie, as we all know. I stayed up and watched it till I think three or four o'clock in the morning that night after my shift was over. And I raved about it. I still rave about it. And I I I bought it after that, and I don't think I've watched it since. I can't 100% commit to that, but I'm pretty sure I've not watched it again since.
2: Yeah, it's no interesting reason. that that's one of those movies where I've I've heard a lot about it. I've heard good things. I've heard bad things. But I realize that I I don't really know anything about it except for like the title and like some of the the stuff behind it, and and also. Just the fact that it's, that it became a joke in, in Kevin Smith's films because that, that like ended up being like a, a mini rivalry between him and, and the director of Magnolia. And like, uh, I know in Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back, like one of the commenter, like one of the angry, uh, internet trolls that Jay and Silent Bob are going after was named Mag- Magnolia Fan. Yes. Some number. <laughs>
1: Well, and, and, and that's the thing too, upon its release, I think there was a lot of movies in the late 90s, early 2000s that kind of had this, this similar setup to where there's a really talented ensemble cast, and they all have these separate storylines as, as the movie begins. And then towards the end of the film, you see how they're all connected to each other, and how all the characters are subtly or not so subtly. And and I think maybe in the last 10, 15 years, that's been exploited a lot more. But at the time, it was definitely a new thing too, to wear a, a totally different perspective to tell tell a character story for, through. And I I I loved it. So I, I probably after thinking about this, should should rewatch it again. And yeah. you should definitely see it and 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 see <laughs> and 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 see if it's uh, bad or not but i i don't think so i think it's and it's one of tom cruise's best performances ever
2: yeah and I, I know i'm i have a, a kind of hit and miss with movies where like it's it's about a, a large group of characters that are all interconnected like sometimes i really love it whenever it's done well but other times whenever it's not done as well and and this happens in a lot of superhero movies too like yes. ones that have a bunch of villains they have that they're all like interconnected and it's not done very well and it's just annoying more than brilliant
1: it's it's i think it's hard to do and i think i i think if, if and this is one of the scenarios too i think if the characters are written well and you have good enough actors to make make that story and make that character tangible in the short period of time because they're not given a lot of A lot of story time to build whoever they are or what they are, what they're contributing to the story. So Mm -hmm. you really need to be able to do it quickly and still have some connection and understanding of what it all means. Yeah. And it's not—it's definitely not easy to do. And I think some—sometimes you see it in movies where it's a shortcut, or some movies where they're just with superhero movies is a great example. Um, I think that was kind of where Suicide Squad was getting a lot of was that there just wasn't enough character development mm-hmm. and it in the unfortunate aspect of superhero movies is because there's a lot of action and other stuff going on they don't have as much time for character development
2: yeah quickly. i always think that a good example of or a bad example of this is uh, spider-man 3 because that has like a ton of characters but they're so interconnected with each other but they're interconnected with each other in the, all these really weird and convoluted ways
1: yes that's that's a perfect example, and that is probably my least favorite so <laughs> so that is an excellent example <laughs> yeah.
2: and and of course, speaking of superhero movies what what is your favorite superhero movie?
1: This is a question i've I've had before, but every single time I am asked it, I really try and think about it and and, and wonder why I feel the way I do, but because my answer is a pretty common one, I think. It, it is Tim Burton's Batman. There are some superhero movies I would say maybe I enjoy a little more across the board. Some that I find to be more overall entertaining. But this is kind of the movie that got me into superheroes, got me into the comic book genre at all. It was something that I was never particularly, aside from maybe like cartoons and stuff as a kid, but I was, I was pretty young when Batman came out. It was, it was 89, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So I was, I was eight, nine years old when it came out. And. And it was my first real introduction, especially into feature film. I was, I, my mom watched the, like the Superman movies and I never really connected with those. It was, it was the one that turned me into a fan of these kinds of movies and I got excited about them. And these were the kind of movies that I wanted to go to the theater and see thereafter. Even though I think you could argue too that Batman Returns is actually a better movie overall. I think that's fair. Sequel versus, uh, first film
2: yeah. argument. Yeah, I, I know. I, I like Batman Returns a bit better just because I, I feel like it has more of Tim Burton behind it.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, and like I said, it's it's why it's a difficult one for me to say, but I think that that emotional connection I have to the first one.
2: Mm -hmm. I I think a lot of people do that like um, we're pretty much the same age and and like most people a lot of people I asked that's that's around our age go for Tim Burton's Batman and a lot of people that I asked that are older than us will pick uh, Superman Superman or Superman 2 and most people that are like just a bit younger than us they'll go towards the Dark Knight or the Avengers
1: and that's, and that's where I come into where I think those are outstanding films. I'm a huge fan of them and I understand. And, and I think that's where you, you, you do kind of connect emotionally to mm-hmm. to one more over the other.
2: Yeah. And so, one, one other question that I'd uh, like to ask everybody since since I do focus on a narrow niche of movies myself, if you were to, to do a blog or or a podcast or, or just pick like a narrow niche of movies, something smaller than like the traditional genre of like drama or horror, something like superhero movies or serial killer movies, uh, what would that be?
1: Actually, you named one of the ones that I'm kind of infatuated with, and one of the reasons I picked movie for you to watch today that I did um, is is serial killer, uh, psycho thrillers for the most part. I I don't I I can't really explain too much why because I started at such a young age where I was kind of curious about serial killers in general. I think I was probably in my early teens, and I remember any time I could do a research paper or anything. If I could go back to looking up a serial killer, that's, that's what I did. And so when I started watching all these movies, uh, I think, I think, yeah, it was probably natural born killers and seven and, Hmm. and, and so many of those, those kinds of movies where they focus on serial killers. I think there's something very interesting about psychopaths and, and sociopaths. And I I really like it when it's done well, because I think they're kind of terrifying. But at the same time, there's always some weird logic behind behind the villain. And I think villains are more interesting than the heroes usually anyway.
2: Yeah, I think it's always it's fascinating to to look at movies that that. That take a serious look at serial killers because it's not like the the uh, slasher movies where it's just this force of nature that that's coming after the uh, the teenagers that are having sex or doing drugs. But there's like you mentioned, there's this logic to them where the the ones that are done right, they there's this element where you almost understand them, but it's in a in a twisted way that you just can't quite wrap your head around. Yes,
1: I, I think it's. I think it's fascinating. I, I I just I I love them, and and even 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 ones that are done poorly, I still get excited about watching. And because there aren't a lot made, um, so I I I would guess that the the probably doesn't have a wide range audience, and it's not really a a shiny box office type movie, but it's definitely one that um I would enjoy focusing on.
2: And yeah, I I would imagine like. Seven and and The Silence of the Lamb movies are are like only a couple of the ones that have really had much box office success. Yes.
1: Um, And I one of the reasons I got really excited about Zodiac was because it was. It, it had a great cast in it, and I, I was already well informed on Zodiac Killer, and I was very curious about how it would be made. And I thought it was brilliant, and it was well received critically, but it didn't do that well in the theater. And now I still bring it up to people and think, well, this is this is something that's at least in the last ten years or so, maybe more people have seen, and it's not a common one. Yeah. And and it's it's kind of it's kind of depressing. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Uh, and finally, what would you say right now is your biggest film-wise? A film that you haven't seen yet, but you feel like you really should have gotten around to by now.
1: This one, I know there's a couple. And there's a couple that at this point I'm just kind of stubborn about that I haven't <laughs> seen. Like like Annie Hall. Um, uh, <laughs> I've seen parts of Annie Hall, so I, I I don't always think that that one's fair to include. But I still have not seen Mulholland Drive. And I'm a, and I'm a David Lynch fan too. So I, I, there's, it came out at a time when I watched every single, again, college, blockbuster. I watched every single movie that was released every single week. I would take all of them home with me and I would watch them throughout the week. There was not a movie between probably 98 and 2003 that I missed.
2: I have no idea. That one just came out as like the, the number one film. From critics uh, of the the millennium so far, like the yeah. since two thousand on,
1: it's absolutely outrageous that I haven't seen it. There's no reason for me to have not seen it. And I have no idea why I haven't yet. I don't have any, any rational or logical excuse for it. <laughs> I know that I will eventually, but now it's, it, it's, it, I think part of it too, and you probably get this because, you know, you do this for the podcast all the time, movies that mm-hmm. you should have seen, but you haven't. Uh, there's a, there's a level of expectation that's there to enjoy movies like this that are so widely received or regarded. And I, 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 I don't sometimes it works for me, but sometimes it works against me, too, to where I don't know if they're going to live up to those expectations or I'm going, why on earth? Does, did, am I the only person <laughs> in the world that just thinks this is absolutely terrible? And and uh, and and I, that that sometimes puts a distaste in my mouth that I don't think is fair. Yeah. I I do that a lot with the theater too. If I if I hear way too much from critics beforehand or not that I listen to critics, but fellow movie bloggers and podcasters and such even, if if things seem a little too swayed in one way or another, I I try and wait a while till till some of that has died down so I can be a little more objective when I sit down and watch things.
2: Yeah, I can see that. Uh well, it was good to hear a bit more of your uh, movie tastes um but uh, I think it's time to go ahead and talk about the film that you had me watch for the first time, American Psycho. New card. What do you think? So much more to you than you know. I don't think I can control myself.
0: If you stay, something bad will happen. I and mean, when you can harness all that. You will possess a power no one can imagine. I feel lethal. On the verge of frenzy. You ready for this? Let's find out. I'm into, uh... Well, murders and executions mostly. Killing will not bring you peace. Peace was never an option.
1: I'm so excited that this was on your list. Uh I know we were talking about uh serial killers and and movies with sociopaths. Uh this I I was already a big Christian Bale fan at this point and I think this was 2000, wasn't it? 2000?
2: Yeah, I think so.
1: Okay. Uh this it was a movie that I had no idea what it was going into it. I remember the first time I watched it, I watched it by myself, and I sat down, and I, I was about halfway through it, and the experience was, why am I laughing so much? <laughs> <laughs> this is not funny. This should not be funny. This is horrible. And then right after I finished watching it, I started it right over again and watched it again. Uh and then immediately after I found out there was a book, and if you enjoyed the movie, I highly recommend you read the book because I think it gives you a little bit more insight to the, <laughs> the psych of Patrick Bateman, which also gave me a little better context for the movie too. But.
2: Yeah, I've heard the book is quite a bit different.
1: It is, but I think it, it's because, and I think the brilliance of the movie is it does leave a lot open for interpretation, and the book does as well. But it's, it steers you in one direction more than the other because it's told from his first person perspective and there's, there's no shots aside. So you, you're in his brain the whole time. So it's a little bit, it's a little bit harder to kind of wonder what else might be going on that you don't quite understand. Yeah,
2: and that was, that was something that I was surprised. Like, I had heard quite a bit about this movie before seeing it. Like, I'd heard, like, about the Huey Lewis connection and the, the return some videotapes. And, like, I'd seen the uh, the business card dick measuring contest.
0: <laughs>
2: I'd, I'd yes. seen that scene. And I, I knew that it was, like, kind of a, a satire, like, a, like, this weird, like, it's not really supposed to be taken seriously and and like you i i laughed quite a bit during a lot of this movie
1: good good i'm i'm glad because i it it is it is definitely dark humor Mm -hmm. and i definitely wouldn't recommend it to everyone uh but i i i think it's absolutely brilliant it's yeah I,
2: i think i don't think i've ever laughed so hard during a threesome scene
1: no, exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's how seriously can you actually take it? But at the same time, they, they have it in such a, a, a brooding context overall. But I, I, I think Christian Bale's just ridiculous in it too. It's probably one of my favorite roles he's, he's ever played. And I can't see anyone else in it, but it fits the, it fits 80s Wall Street perfectly. It completely encompasses that whole dirty, Shiny feel of money and 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 it's just it's just it's very 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 interesting and i think I think you can appreciate it. On it kind of a superficial level, but I think you can, for all the other things that are going on as well. Yeah. Which I, I know some people were confused by the ending and, again, I, I I think it was purposely intended to kind of be a little bit more open-ended and subject to interpretation.
2: Yeah, I, I do, I do like the fact that it, that it has this ambiguous ending, although I almost wish that there was, like, some hints that they threw in, like, if you maybe actually see like, Paul Allen in the background. Yeah. To confirm it. Because it... And and we're kind of, like, dancing around the topic, but, like, throughout the film, of course, we see Patrick Bateman kill a large number of people, and he confesses to killing even more people that we don't see. But then... There's this hint that, like, whenever he confesses to his lawyer on his answering machine, and then the next day he thinks that it's a joke because the lawyer actually said that he talked with Paul Allen in London, which is the the alibi that Bateman created. And also, like, Bateman's own alibi that he didn't even know about, which was corroborated with his group of friends that they were out at dinner someplace else the night that Paul Allen disappeared. So there's this hint that it's all in his head. And and also like on top of that, the entire like third act of this movie is very bizarre and dreamlike. Yes.
1: Which I think is, is kind of where you're completely enveloped in his, his mind. Mm -hmm. You, you are now experiencing the world through, through his eyes and what he's seeing his confusion and his, his struggle with, with, his clear psychotic breakdown that he's having, hmm. <laughs> but um, but yeah, I I I I I like I like that it's I like that it's ambiguous. I like that it's kind of uh, that it doesn't kind of spell everything out for you. But yeah, and, and at the it,
2: same time, like there's there's these hints that he might be correct, but at the same time, like throughout the entire movie. These Wall Street suits are always getting mistaken for each other. Like, th- th- I mean, the whole reason why he decides, or not the whole reason, but one of the reasons why he decides to kill Paul Allen in the first place is because Paul mistakes him for another, like, Wall Street douchebag. Yes,
1: and then uh, to me too, one of the most amusing parts is when he's actually supposed to be doing his job. He does nothing. You look at his planner and his calendar, and there's nothing. Nothing scheduled. He isn't doing anything. The, the blankness of his life is is absolutely hilarious. Well, I don't know if I can schedule that in or not. Oh, okay. Yeah.
2: I, ha- I have a, uh, a lunch with Cliff Huxtable Huff- Cliff, Cliff that I have to get to. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's
1: it's it's pretty it's pretty brilliant. Request yeah, the- of a reflection at times.
2: Yeah, and, and you mentioned reflection, and I love how much we see, like, his, his face is obscured throughout this, throughout the film. Like, I, I think one of the, the great shots was relatively early on whenever he's, like, in in a taxi cab, and, like, the, the sliding glass is, so you can see the, the woman that he's sitting next to clearly, but the glass in front of his face is frosted. Yes, yes. And of course, like we see him with the the mask peel whenever he's talking about his uh morning routine. And um and I also love the scene whenever he's whenever he invites Joan over, uh whenever he's gonna kill her with the nail gun. And he's like going back and forth through through the pantries and there's that one partition. That's like this wide partition that he keeps basically blocking himself from the camera as he walks behind. Yes, he does. And and just how everything in his house is so meticulously placed. Like, he has the the drawer, the cutlery drawer, and there's no... It's, like, just completely flat, but everything is positioned so perfectly and, and parallel to each other. And, he, and even, like, his uh, cabinet that has all, like, the, his uh, serial killer tools. Like, he has the uh, the various tapes all stacked neatly in a little pyramid...
1: It's all very balanced when he's very unbalanced <laughs> yeah but that that is that is how he wanted to be perceived by everyone as this this whole entire idea of perception and then the whole entire idea of reality and and what is real and what isn't
2: yeah and and so much like I mean there's there's the business cards which that's that's kind of in the forefront but there's also just this entire like, culture within these Wall Street people about uh, where they want to go, like, where they can get reservations. Darcia. Yeah. And and I do love, like, how the first time he calls and asks for the reservation, the guy just laughs at him.
1: (laughs) And then he gets his date drugged up enough that she doesn't know where she is. Mm -hmm. Pumpkin, you're dating an asshole. (laughs) (laughs) It's... (laughs) Yeah, it's so so. You enjoyed it then?
2: Yeah, it it was a lot of fun, and I mean, it it, it just goes so many different places. And um, Christian Bale just plays the character so so great. Just how he walks the line between being this very friendly and sociable uh, businessman who like gets all these dates and is screwing with uh, screwing a ton of different women. Um. Oh, While well, he's checking himself out in the mirror. You know.
1: <laughs> well, well, and and that's that's exactly it too. It's this whole striving for this this lifestyle and this thing, and yet he's completely unhappy with it.
2: Yeah, and it's
1: not satisfying at all to
2: him. And, and it's all and like everything he does is is more is like this status symbol within Wall Street. Even even though like nobody. Even though, like, the stuff that... A lot of the stuff that he does, he can't really tell anybody about. It's still this, like, unconscious status symbol. Like, the the number of women that he's screwing. Um, like, the the fact that he does, like, set up this threesome more than once. It's it's almost like that's just something that he's expected to do. Like, so he can uh, one-up his, his other friends.
1: And yet he's resentful of it at the same time.
2: Mm-hmm. And even any, like, everybody has their own, like, uh, socialite fiancé that uh, is, they may or may not ever actually eventually marry, but that's just another one of their status symbols. And and I do love, like, just the fact with the, the one guy that's, um, where he's screwing the, the gay guy's fiancé. But the yes. gay guy likes him, too. <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> but they have to maintain what they look like to everybody else and their false personas, no matter mm. if they want to be murdering people behind closed doors or screwing other guys.
2: Yeah. Uh, although I do I did think that it was kind of weird that we never see him again throughout the movie. And I, I think... Uh, do you know? Was he one of the ones that, like, he confesses over the the uh, answer machine to killing?
1: I don't think he does. I, I
2: I got the impression that that he killed the guy, but there's no explicit I, mention of it within the film at all.
1: It's it's possible he said it. It's been a little while since I've watched it, but I don't think that he was on his list of because I don't think that he was most of the people that he killed per se, uh, were in some way slighted him. Mm. And because he was banging his fiance or girlfriend, and even though he was gay, he wasn't slating him. It was more the other way around. He was already getting his snub in on him by sleeping with his his significant other. Mm. So I don't, If if you use that, apply that logic, I don't think that he would be included in the people
2: that he killed on the list.
1: Yeah, but I don't. And, I don't think he was.
2: And and one other thread that that I thought was gonna go one way, but it, it just ended up getting dropped was the last time that he saw the uh, that woman, the the gay guy's fiance. Um, she the way she talks, it's you get the impression that she's gonna commit suicide. Just based on the amount, like, the all the drugs that she's taking, like, for antidepressants and how she is always, like, just so out of it.
1: Oh, she was a complete stereotype for that time and age socialite. She was constantly in a complete fog. Like, she didn't even know she was in a a different restaurant when he said he took her Mm -hmm. to Dorcia. All of those things. She was always mixing whatever um antidepressants she was on, which unlike today at the time, that wasn't as common across the board for for everyone to be on. At the time that was a, a rich a rich girl drug and then drinking constantly at the same time too. And she was I know I know Samantha Mathis is it is Samantha Mathis. Yes. Uh as a small tiny actress anyway, but I thought that they kind of made her look a little bit even more gaunt and frail and and she, she did just kind of look like she was almost ghostly sifting through it. And she's a beautiful woman, but, but yeah, that's, that's definitely probable. She was, I think she was probably the one he was closest to actually as he could be because she also was discontent with their lifestyle, but at the same time felt the pressure of living up to it.
2: Yeah. But like I said, at the same time, like during their last encounter, She definitely gave off a vibe like she was thinking about committing suicide like shortly afterwards. And and I thought that that was going to be brought up again. But then she just kind of falls off the face of the movie.
1: Yes, I get (laughs) open-ended. Yeah.
2: And, you know, I I think one last thing that I do want to talk about is I kind of touched on just that dreamlike moments like towards the end whenever he completely goes off the deep end like whenever he's running through the this em- completely empty apartment building chasing after the prostitutes with the chainsaw uh, completely naked except for his sneakers
1: <laughs> with and they're bright white with splatters mm-hmm. of blood on them
2: yeah and like nobody like nobody's there
1: and no nobody's nobody's hearing the screaming nobody's checking mm-hmm. down the stairs uh, why someone's running through a, a building with a chainsaw in the middle of the night. Yeah, there's... <laughs> there's... And
2: then, like, shortly afterwards, he goes, uh, like, in the next scene, he goes to the ATM, and the ATM's like, please, please, please feed me the kitten. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, by then, you know, he's completely gone.
2: <laughs> right. And he's, like, shooting at the police, and the police car just randomly explodes. And, and even he seems, like, shot. surprised. Yeah, he's <laughs> like, did that just happen?
1: Yeah, Michael Bay hasn't really started making movies yet.
2: <laughs> but yeah, that, I mean, it was all just really great, and there was so much within it, and, and it's really gorgeously shot, and, and even the way that he talks about the the singers, like, the, the different music that he's playing right whenever he's about to kill somebody. And I don't know. There's just so much detail, and I think the film looks gorgeous in in, in a lot of different shots. Just the the opulence of this like '80s Wall Street businessman, all, all the the high end apartments and the, the high end restaurants and, and everything. And and we haven't even mentioned um, the detective, uh, Will, Willem Dafoe.
1: Oh yeah. Oh, goodness. Yeah, he had almost like a, a noir kind of feel to his character, too. Uh, but, I mean, it's Willem Defoe, so he uh, <laughs> he brings that to, to all of his, his roles a little bit, I think. Yeah, and, But
2: and it's so, like, their interactions are so interesting because you're, not, you're never sure if he's just, like, because he's so cordial and he never impl- implicates him in anything. And then he ends up having, like, basically having his alibi for him. that that he hands it to like at, at the very end. And then, and again, that's, that's a thread that like, once he gives him his alibi, then he's disappeared from the movie. Yes.
1: Yes. So, so the perception of what is real and what is not is even more complex.
2: Yeah. But yeah, it's, uh, I'm glad that you you introduced it to me, and uh, I'm I'm glad I finally got to, to watch it. Uh, it. It was like I'm I'm a fan of of dark comedies, and like I I really enjoyed this one. It was very very funny, and but it, it had a lot of layers to it as well. That's that I'm sure I could dig into on if I were to rewatch it.
1: Well, that, I was just gonna say this is this is one that benefits from several several rewatches and i i guess i i kind of i enjoy movies that just take me out of my comfort zone sometimes and and flip the typical movie scenery around and and this was definitely one that i think still holds up and isn't really comparable to anything else and that uniqueness alone is applauded by me so i'm really glad you enjoyed it
2: yeah no uh, it, it's a great movie um Alright, well, we are going to take a quick break, and then whenever we come back, we're going to talk about the film that I had you watch for the first time, X-Men First Class. This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com. Hello, and I'm Nick. And I'm Joe. And I'm Vern. Together we host the As You Watch podcast. And drink beer. Vern! (laughs) We're a movie podcast, not a beer one.
1: I know, I just enjoy having one when I'm talking with friends. And that's what the show feels like, hanging out with your friends and talking about movies.
0: So check us out on
2: iTunes or on our website at asyouwatch.wordpress.com. So, X-Men First Class came out in 2011 and it was intended to be a reboot to take over Fox's X-Men franchise and bring in a younger cast. It, it was directed by Matthew Vaughn, uh, though Brian Singer did have a co-writing and producing credits after he had stepped away from uh, the third X-Men to do Superman Returns instead. Um, it, unfortunately, it did end up being one of the lowest grossing films in the franchise, but it did receive quite a bit of critical acclaim. And has uh, continued on to have two more sequels that who have gone on to more success. Um, so, what would you say is your experience overall with the entire X Men franchise? All like what ten films now is it nine or ten? Yes,
1: yes, and and that's that's something that I've run into in the last probably four or five years with the superhero genre in general, which I love and I get excited when I see uh, so many different spin-offs but and sequels and prequels and and even remakes sometimes with X-Men at this point I think I'd gotten to oh my gosh I can't even keep up anymore and I had just started getting into the Marvelverse and and it just seemed like there was a lot going on and I think I'd kind of given up on the X-Men series not not because I didn't enjoy it anymore but it was just a lot hmm. and This was one that I do remember when it was released. As you said, um, my, particularly my superhero comic friends really, really enjoyed it. And I looked at the cast and that's Kevin Bacon, uh, Michael Fassbender, James McAvoy, um, Jennifer Lawrence. It's, it's a fantastic cast. I, I really like the concept of them going back to where they started. Mm-hmm. I think, I, I think those, those storylines in themselves are, are very compelling. So I was curious when I turned it on to kind of see how all of that went. And actually as a character piece, I think that's what I enjoyed most about it. I found the relationship of, of Charles Xavier and, and Magneto there as probably the most interesting part. I also had no familiarity whatsoever with the origins of any of these characters. So this was all somewhat of a learning experience for me, and I had no idea that Mystique was in fact buddies with uh, on the good guy side for a while and, and 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 so many so many where they had began and what kind of turned them into the people they were. Well, I, I
2: believe technically she wasn't until this film.
1: Okay, okay. I, it worked though. I, that mm. did work for me. The relationships, how they all kind of started off. I, I think, um, I think Eric, played by Fastbender, was for me the most interesting part because his character, I think, evolved the most. He had the most real gritty emotional connection to how he became where he was and, and who he eventually was. But, but I, 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 I definitely was most interested in his story. There, there's a couple parts that got a little goofy for me, and and kind of I started to lose some of my attention to. Uh, when they were messing, I and it's completely reasonable that it was there too. When they were all messing around with their powers
2: and oh, yeah.
1: partying like a bunch of kids.
2: Yeah, that that I, was definitely watching it again was something that I thought felt very out of place with the rest of the movie.
1: Yes, it was. It was almost it was almost distracting because at that point it felt I I did feel like we had we had taken some time to go back far enough that I that it just it felt more mature than that.
2: Yeah, and I kind of I. I understand that they probably felt like it had that kind of scene had to be in there, but it it did feel very out of sorts with with how everything else was introduced. Like I I understand that they had to, like they this is a, a movie about super powered mutants, and they have to find they basically have to find an excuse to introduce the audience to everyone's abilities but at the same time that that did feel very forced and, and very out of place, just that they all get basically get drunk and like just show off their powers to each other. It's like, say, what can you, what can you do? Oh, show us what you can do.
1: Yes. And, and, and because I did feel like the tone of the rest of the movie was, and yes it is a superhero movie with superpowers, but it was a little bit more complex and mature than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that that was one of the things that really interested me in it because it was different. It was it, it was a good place to start if you had either liked or didn't like any of the other X Men movies. I think up to this point, you didn't have to be connected to them in order to enjoy this movie, which I did for the most part.
2: Yeah, uh, and, and I I do think that it was handled. It would have been handled much better if they'd have done like what they did shortly like just a little bit later in the movie, whenever they go into basically the training montage with the split screens. I, I thought that one if they had done something similar to that, only with them being introduced to each other, I thought that would have I think that would have worked quite a bit better and, and I did love like how they did the split screen. Uh, and and I almost wish that they would have done more of that kind of stuff throughout the movie.
1: I agree. I, I think that uh, kind of was definitive of it set itself apart from everything else. I, I, I really did like a lot of the the more or less kind of seeing Mystique's struggle with what she really looked like than what she looked like than what she really looked like. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then all, all of them, which I mean, they do kind of touch on this in most of the movies, is them accepting the fact that they're different, which is You know, universal connection that anybody can kind of grasp, but I think they did it in a, in a, in a pretty good way in this to where it was, it was tangible. And the action in it too, I'm, I'm totally an action junkie, but sometimes, like we were discussing earlier, big ensemble casts, you're introducing a lot of characters. It's hard to really kind of get it to know and have any kind of attachment to characters when there's too much other distractions going on. And I didn't feel like this movie did that. I, I think they did a really good job of avoiding overdoing it. They did take a couple scenes, uh like when Fassbender went to the... Oh God, was he a Russian guy? He he went in and 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 there was this like oh he was he was French and he was talking to him and yeah and there was this that scene right there. It was very it was pretty short but it was really really intense and all it was was dialogue and that mm-hmm. was probably one of my favorite scenes
2: in the movie. But yeah and and one thing that I I love about this movie is uh, especially from someone who has seen like all of the X Men movies uh, even, even some of the the lesser known ones that's. Uh, People don't talk about it anymore, but uh, I love how they how it fits within the X Men universe, like the, the X Men film universe. They have all these extra touches that are callbacks that they're not they're not that blatant. I, I mean, in a way they are, but I feel like it's it's just enough subtlety, like um, where it's like a bit of comic relief, but. And sometimes you don't even, like, if you don't necessarily know the connection, like, I mean, obviously the, the Wolverine cameo everyone's gonna catch, and, and it is great to, to see him just for that one line. And, uh, and, and it's great because I actually watched, uh, X Men Days of Future Past, the Rogue Cut, just last week, like, just a few days ago. So I noticed a lot more of the connections, and, and they have a callback to that line, which I think is in the Rogue Cut, but not in the theatrical cut, where, um, where Xavier says to to Wolverine like I'm going to say uh, I th- I think I do remember meeting you a long time ago and I'm going to say to you the what you said to me back then.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, well and that was that was what I felt like was really good about this too is because it was done I think Definitely more on an intellectual level and, and it definitely played off of relationships more and, and you could tell too that it was, it was definitely set up for future sequels to it. Uh, oh, oh that was one of the things I also found interesting was, uh, Beast Hank. I, I had no idea that he was an intellectual and he was a genius. Uh, oh, yeah. I, I, I just thought he was a crazy, scary dog of Magneto.
2: <laughs> okay, but that's, that's why he was, well, I mean, he's he's an X-Men. Uh, he's one of the good guys. And that's that's one reason why people thought that having Kelsey Grammer play him in the third movie was that one bit of perfect casting.
1: Well, and that's, and that's kind of where I, I found a lot of this to be interesting. It wasn't just a fallback going, hey, we're going to tell you how they got here. There was a lot of information to have that you, you wouldn't have. That's mm. just assumed at at you know the the first few movies.
2: And and a lot of it is like brand new. It's it diverges from the comic book backgrounds. Well, uh, how
1: does that go over with most of the the comic book fans? Because I know some people don't like that at all when that happens. But sometimes there's a positive response to it.
2: Yeah, it's tough for me to know because I'm not really couched in in the big comic book. Uh, community. So I, I I don't really know how this is, is perceived by like comic book purists because as much as I'm a superhero guy, I'm not a comic book guy. So I'm like for me to know a lot of the changes, it's because I've read about them um, in the context of this movie. Like like I already mentioned, how Mystique she was never really a hero. I think maybe later on she. Like, later on in her character's life within the comics, maybe she became somewhat of a good guy. But she's always pretty much been a villain, and she started as a villain. Um, And, like, Beast, uh, he was always, like, blue and furry, even... Well, I mean, not in his very first incarnation in in the comics, but... uh, Because I think he was just, like, a big kind of hairy, but, like, human hairy brute guy uh in like the very first X-Men comic but i think he was pretty quickly changed to the the blue furry that that he becomes at the end of this movie and it was like never just his feet but uh and i know some of some of the other connections that i that i wanted to mention that i really loved is how the the opening of the film we get to see like uh, eric's childhood with him in um in the concentration camps which is almost directly shot for shot from the opening of the first x-Men movie yes and and then also we get like another brief cameo from uh, Rebecca Romaine um, in in the bedroom scene where she's Magneto, where she thinks that uh, her being a little bit older would um, for Magneto, and she turns from uh, Jennifer Lawrence into Rebecca Romaine for a moment. Yes. It's like, do you like me better like this?
0: Yeah.
2: And then another one that I noticed that that I don't think I would have caught had I not seen Days of Future Past just a few days ago. But whenever Xavier is talking about his, um, his thesis paper, he says a line, uh, from it about, um, how in the, in history, the, the mutated version of human quickly or the the non-mutated version of the of human in history quickly became extinct that line is repeated by bolivar trask in days of future past oh
1: i i i also like it too and i think um i think they kind of really did it well at the end is when i mean spoiler but when everyone turns against all of them that that's where their real divide which is when you kind of would expect them to band together but it makes sense their real mm-hmm. divide happens between heroes villains but i think the line's so much grayer and i think it's actually way easier to empathize with who becomes the villains than it is necessarily with the heroes because i think the the film did a really good job of making you connect with all of them and understand the alienation that all of them felt they may not have all gone about things Exactly the same or the the right way. But at one point they were all fighting for the good.
2: Right, and and that's what I always love when the X Men movies can do that. Whenever it's not just about the action movie with superpowers, but whenever it it really tries to get to the to the the outsider subtext, like whether it's I mean it's it's something that can be latched on by a lot of outsider groups, whether it's homosexuals or minorities or. Or anything else that just this concept of being different and being treated by the rest of the world as that there's something wrong with you.
1: Yes. And I, that's one of the things that I, well, I, I connect to with the X Men movies the most. I think that that theme runs so strongly, but I think that they do a really, really good job of, of making it important, but still making it
2: fun. Right. And uh, how great was it to see, like, Michael Ironside just in that small role as, as the ship captain?
1: I freak out every time <laughs> I see him in anything. And he shows up for five minutes in movies and TV mm-hmm. shows just randomly. I love Michael Ironside, so that was that was absolutely fantastic. Yeah. That was one of my favorite parts just yeah. because he was there. And I and, had no one idea what was happening.
2: <laughs> yeah, one other thing. I, I don't know if you were a fan of this show, but did you notice that, his, that like, the... The guy next to him that was, like, on the headphones. Uh, did you ever watch Roswell?
1: No, I did not.
2: Uh, he, he, like, played one of the three main guys in Roswell, and my wife's a big fan of that show. So it's like, hey, it's him. Oh, that's cool. That,
1: that's, that That See, that's that's kind of what I, I felt through most of it, though, is there's a, a lot of detail and a lot of thought put into it and care. It wasn't just rushed together for another paycheck movie. It wasn't just created as a... Hey, we're going to keep making these because people keep going to the theater to see them, which I think we're, we're starting to get a little bit more often than not anymore. Uh, there was definitely a lot of thought, time, and
2: affection put into
1: this movie with the yeah. intention of, of restarting the at
2: least X-Men storyline. Yeah, even though it was like made on an extremely short schedule, like I wanted the in the trivia I was reading, That's like Matthew Vaughn was originally offered to direct The Last Stand, but he said that he declined because it was uh, on such a short schedule. But First Class actually had a shorter shooting schedule than uh, The Last Stand did. uh,
1: It didn't it didn't feel that way at all. It didn't feel rushed. It didn't. There, there were some. Connection. I think there were a few
2: parts. Like, I yeah, I've, one thing that always bugs me was I, I really don't like the look of Emma Frost's diamond skin.
1: I didn't. I like January Jones too. She was the look of her and her character in general was one of the things that I had a complete disconnect for throughout mm. the the entire movie and. Oh, yeah, but the, the that, that,
2: yeah, that was almost distracting. Yeah, I, I know that, and it's disappointing, too, because I know that Emma Frost is, like, she has a, a big history in the comics, but she has so little um, to do in the movies or even in, like, any of the TV shows that, like, the, I don't think she showed up hardly at all in, like, the 90s cartoon, which I watched, so it's like, I know almost nothing about Emma Frost, even though she's... Like, I I know that she's I don't know probably in one of the top twenty characters, twenty or thirty characters in the X Men.
1: I think she is too, but I'm I'm like you where I don't I don't and I didn't really know much much about her. I just have heard her referenced regularly over mm. you know the years, and and I was interested in her at first, but as as the movie went on, it was she felt almost like an afterthought. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and she wasn't, but it, it almost felt that way. It was almost unnecessary for her to even be there, other than Kevin Bacon have another villain on his side.
2: Yeah, and she gets such she gets like such short shrift, like even from Kevin Bacon, who goes on like the the 60s sexist remarks, like, uh, "Can you be a doll and, and get fetch me some more ice?" And, and on top of that and she gets like dispatched relatively easily too
1: yeah it was almost like a, a Austin Powers not not to that extent but it was it was a little bit almost um bond villainish uh feel to to the entire relationship
2: mm-hmm. and and one other thing that is kind of disappointing it, it doesn't really affect the movie if you're not thinking about it but it it is disappointing where we mentioned how I mean the the whole allegory of of X Men in general being about this illusion for being like minorities being taken seriously, and yet there are so few minority actors in this, and one of them like gets killed right away, Darwin. Yeah, yeah. It's like there's just Darwin and Zoe Kravitz, I, and, and that's it. Uh,
1: yeah. Now that you mention it, I I'm I'm thinking, and I <laughs> there there really isn't any others.
2: Mm-hmm. But well, yeah, aside from that, I, I think it was a lot of fun. I'm glad that it sounds like you enjoyed it pretty well.
1: I I did. I like I said, I've been kind of off off the X Men radar for quite a while now, and I it, it it's it's not as though I didn't have the interest to go back to it, but I haven't had a good reason to just just yet. I'm still trying to catch up on some of the Marvel movies that I'm getting chastised for not staying connected to. I haven't seen Ant-Man yet, and, uh, I still haven't seen the most recent Captain America. I still haven't seen Civil War, which my, my brother in particular is giving me a hard time about. I'm trying, I will get there. <laughs> but this, this gave me a good reason to go back and check it out, and I was, I wasn't expecting a lot, and I was, I was pleasantly surprised. I definitely enjoyed it, and it's made me kind of reignite uh, interest in the whole entire universe again.
2: Yeah, if you haven't seen Days of Future Past, I, I would highly recommend to watch that one afterwards. I, I think it, it follows up really well, and it's it's a good um, link between the the new cast and the old cast.
1: I definitely will.
2: But uh, I know Apocalypse, that one can be hit and miss. I, I liked it, but a lot of people didn't. That on, was on a...
1: yeah that 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 one was that was the most recent one yes it was yeah mm-hmm. yeah uh, you know it, I just haven't heard that many people talk about it which yeah. isn't a good thing either though but there it was it was like in theater for a bit there was a little bit and then
2: poof yeah it, it made a decent amount of money it made less than Days of Future Past. But I, I think the studio later said, "Well, they never expected it to make more than Days of Future Past because that, that had the draw of both casts and and a well known story." So I, I don't know if it's if it's kind of considered a success or a failure. I, I think people who don't like it consider it a failure, and and people who do consider it a success. One of those movies.
1: Well, there I, will definitely be more. So yeah, they.
2: There definitely is, I know, like, I actually haven't heard what the next X-Men movie actually is gonna be. I just know that there's, like, the next two are, are, like, Wolverine 3 and Deadpool 2. Yes, yes.
1: Which is not, is not a bad thing either. I, Wolverine attracts people that aren't necessarily into the X-Men series itself. And, and has its own kind of niche, I think, and an audience. And you could say exactly the same thing for Deadpool. I think they both kind of reignite a different audience and kind of give people more interest back into the, this world.
2: Yeah. Actually, I think I have heard that, I, that they're considering an, an X-Force movie, which is like X-Men in the future.
1: I think I'll see the next two here before I say anything about that. (laughs) (laughs) Because it would be very unbiased or biased at this point. (laughs) Yeah. All
2: right. Well, um, I'd like to thank you for talking with me today. And and I think you you picked a couple of great movies and and I'm glad that uh, we both liked uh, both of the films because uh, that's not always the case. I, I I typically like the one that my guest picks for me, but uh, the superhero movies tend to be a lot more hit and miss.
1: I I think that they appeal more more to personal taste in in general, and 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 you know not all of them turn uh, turn out you know to be. Great. There's some that I think are are fantastically enjoyable. Like, I really enjoy the Thor sequel, and I don't think anybody else does.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm one of those people. I like it.
1: Yeah, I'm not going to go out on a limb and say it's a brilliant movie, but I thought it was entertaining and fun, and I enjoyed it for purely superficial popcorn reasons. Mm. So, so, you know, I think it's, it's all, it's all point of view and, and, and to your perspective where you're coming from, comic book fans, superhero movie fans, there's so many different places that people see these, these movies from that they have more personal attachment to
2: or not as well. Uh, And why don't you go ahead and remind everybody where they can find you online?
1: Uh, you can find me on the MILFcast at Potomatic. Uh, you can also follow us on Facebook, if you like, at MILFCast, or on Instagram at MILFCast. It's mostly me posting fun, nerdy stuff on there all the time. Um, and hopefully we can have you as a guest on the show sometime in the near future.
2: Sure, that would be a lot of fun. And as always, I am Bubba Wheat, and you can find me on Twitter, at Bubba Wheat, and you can find my site at FlightStitesMovieNights.com. You can find FilmWise on iTunes, Podomatic, Stitcher, and Google Play. Um, and uh, hopefully, um, I will be starting a new podcast here pretty soon. Um, it, it may already be out by the time this uh, is posted, but it's called Sketched Out on TV, uh, where me and my co-host, uh, Chris Revel of uh, Let's Chat with Revel and Friends, we're going to be discussing sketch comedy TV shows and, and looking at uh, one sketch at a time. Uh, so uh, keep an eye out for that, and, and hopefully that comes out soon. And until next time.